Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect or mature and upright. He was just and one that feared or reverenced God and departed. That's what the word excuse means, from evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. And then it lists all the stuff he had, all the thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys and all those who worked in his house. So the point that he was the greatest man of all the men in the East. One translation says he's the richest. Another translation said he's the most influential man in all of the East. Now, he was so prosperous that his sons went and feasted in their houses. So each one of his sons and daughters had their own house. And depending on how he translated, they either had a party for each day of the week or they just had parties on their birthdays. Now, these weren't just, hey, let's get together, come to the house. Each time they gathered, it was a feast. And they invited all of their siblings to come with them. Now, we get to verse 5. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So when we look at Job's life so far, man, he's rich. Not just rich, he's uber rich. Not just is he rich, he has influence. He's a mature man of God. He's grown up in the things of God. He doesn't Halfway, he doesn't compromise. He follows God fully. Now, when we see when he's making sacrifices because of the covenant he was under and the dispensation he was in, half of what he's doing is correct. Every morning, he got up and offered sacrifices for his family, which he should have done. But where it crossed over what he could do, he says, they may have cursed God in their hearts. So now you go from an act of faith to an act of fear. For as men, every morning we should wake up and plead the blood of Jesus over our family. We call them out by name. Father, I lift up so-and-so to you. I lift up them to you, and I cover them with the blood of Jesus. I ask that you protect them and keep them from the enemy. You call them out by name, and you call different promises over their life. Now, there's some things I say to my daughters, some confessions I say to them, and they've memorized and they repeat it back to me. But there's some things I say over them in my private time of prayer they have not told them about. Because I'm lifting them up before God, and I believe as I'm saying something as a priest over my house, that God's going to hear my words and use my words. So every day as men of faith, we need to lift our wives, if we're married, up before God, and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren up before God and cover them in the blood of Jesus. And as you go on, you see, there came a time when Satan and the fallen angels gathered before God's throne, and God... Look to Satan and says, have, where have you come from? He says, uh, you know, walking back and forth on the earth. And the Lord said unto Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a mature and upright man that fears God, that reverences me, and departs from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job reverence or is all on you for nothing? You've made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. Notice how Job was living his life caused a wall to be built around him, his family, and his money. 
God built a hedge of protection or a wall of the blessing that kept him safe. Nobody could touch him because of the wall. He says, not only does you build a wall around him, everything he does works. You increase him in everything. Now, the only reason Satan knows this is because he's been paying attention. He's been looking for ways to take Job out, and he couldn't find it. He looked to take him out, but there's a wall around him. His family, there's a wall around them. His money, there's a wall around them. He's been searching back and forth. How can I take down the most influential man in the East? How can I take down the most rich man, the richest man in the East? And Satan tries to get God to do something. He says, hey, test his motive. Put forth his hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. But notice verse 12, because some people make strange doctrines out of Job. But notice what the Lord says unto Satan. Behold, all that he has is in your power or is in your hand. Wait a minute. Job had a hedge about him. How do we get to verse 11 where everything Job has is already in Satan's hand? God didn't say, I'm giving it to you. He said, it's already in your hand. So you can already do what to him, whatever you want. But now God limits it. He says, even though you can do what you want with them, you're still not allowed to kill them. Now, how did Job's body, marriage, family, business, possessions get put in the hand of Satan? Fear. Go to Job 3, verse 25. Job chapter 3, verse 25. Job went from being the most protected man in the East to a man who all of his possessions were handed over to Satan. Job 3.25 says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is coming to me. The Hebrew even says, I feared a fear, and it came on me. And so some of you who are familiar with the story know what happens next, that a tornado comes and destroys the house where all of Job's children are having a feast, and they all die. On the same day, Raiders come in and massacre those who are watching Job's flock. On the same day, a storm comes and fire falls down and consumes the rest of his animals. So Job goes from having a full family to no children whatever and broke. The next attack, Satan causes boils to appeal on his skin. So now he's lost his health. And now he's lost his marriage because his wife looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God so you can die? He's gone from having everything to nothing in a quick period of time. So now he has four friends that gather around him. And when they see him, they don't, he says it doesn't even look like the Job they knew. So they're so disturbed by how he looks, they don't say anything for a week. They just all sit there in silence. And in Job's response to some of his friends, he says, how did this happen? I was afraid of something. Exactly what I feared came into my life. The message version says it this way. Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper and then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered. My peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded life. Death has invaded life. See, when we think about an invasion, we're thinking about war. We're thinking about battle. See, Satan is always looking for a place which he can invade our lives, our families, and our homes. He's always looking for an opening so he can invade. We have to remember that in this life, we are in a battle. And so what I'm going to start talking to you about today and we'll follow up later is we are warrior priests. 
God has called us to be warrior priests. And as warrior priests, we have to know we have an enemy that is looking for inroads into our lives, to our families, into our house, to whatever we have, so that he can invade and so that he can destroy. Ephesians 4.27 says, neither give place to the devil. That word place means landmass, position, or foothold. So Paul is saying, don't give Satan an opening. Don't give Satan a foothold. So if he has to tell you not to do it, it's very possible for you to do it. How did Satan give Job an opening? He was afraid. Are there things in your life that you are afraid of? There's some fear in your life that you have left unchecked. Because if you are afraid and stay in fear, there is an open door for Satan to come in. There's other things you can do that give Satan a foothold. Not just saying he's trying to look at your house from the outside and attack, but now he has a place to set up shop inside your own home. We have to realize we're leaders. What we do can open up doors and portals into our house. And we have to be men of faith who are warrior priests who shut down the enemy's attacks. 2 Corinthians, let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Don't give Satan a foothold. Jesus said about him, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's always looking for that opportunity to come and steal the word from you, to come kill things in your life, and to destroy you. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. And when Paul's writing this letter, when we read 1 Corinthians, there's one person he checked through the scriptures. He didn't call him by name, but everybody knew who he was talking about. It's obvious when you get to 2 Corinthians, this person felt so bad, he repented, he didn't know what to do. And Paul says, I've already forgiven him. You need to forgive him too. He says, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, I forgave it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So he goes from forgiveness to Satan's battle schemes because unforgiveness opens the door for Satan to come in. He says we can't be ignorant of his devices. We cannot be ignorant of Satan's strategies and schemes. We are in a war. The stakes are high. What we do doesn't only affect us, but affects our families and our communities. We cannot just pretend that we're just living life and there's not an enemy out to get us. There are strategies. There are devices. We see them a lot in Mark chapter 4. But we must be men who know what Satan's trying to do and stop him before he does it. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Unforgiveness, fear, and give places to the enemy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing they gender strife. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, must not be a person full of strife. But be gentle unto all men, and apt to teach, patient, and meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at 
his will. So we see here there are people who are always full of strife, always trying to start fights, always causing things. These people who are full of strife, Satan has them exactly where he wants them. He says he can take them captive at his will. That word captive means make them a prisoner of war. So they think they're living their life, think they're doing whatever they want to do. They think they're good. But as soon as Satan's ready, he can take them and make them his prisoner of war. He didn't say he's going to kill them. He's going to make them his prisoner. So if you're a person full of strife and unforgiveness, you've opened the door for Satan to come in, not just mess with you and your house, but make you a prisoner of war whenever he wants to. Your will has even been taken out of it. Satan's got you where he wants you in a trap. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. See, these things aren't the big things. We think, oh, if there's a big sin where men are concerned, it's this. Oh, it's that. It's this. It's things that people think are normal, fear, unforgiveness. It's, well, I can be full of strife because you don't know what they did. You know what they said. I can get even. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humility is yielding to God's plan for your life. Being proud is doing your own thing and thinking you know better than God. Casting all your care upon him, all your worry, all your anxiety, all your fear, everything that stresses you out. The proud carries their own anxiety. I got this. I can handle it myself. The proud refuses to take worries and stress and fear and give it to God. So if you carry these things, you're putting yourself in a position where God can't help you. You put yourself in a position where you want God to resist you. Because then he goes into verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Notice if there are whom he may devour, there's whom he can't devour. So the proud Satan can devour. The people who keep on their worries, their stress, their anxiety, their fear, those are people Satan can devour. But those who are the humble, Satan can devour you. Those who cast every care, every worry, every anxiety upon Jesus, Satan cannot devour you. Then he gives us verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affliction, the same pressure are accomplishing your brethren throughout in the world. One of the tricks of Satan is to try to make you think you're the only one going through this. There's no one ever in the history of man that's ever faced what you're facing. It's a lie. It's similar. Satan is limited to this realm. So if you're facing it, someone else has faced it. And if you can face it, you can beat it. Because 1 Corinthians, Corinthians already told us God will never let something come into your life that there's not already a way of escape he provided for you. So you can't fall to the trick that, oh, there's no way I can win. No one else has fought this before. And so what are you doing? You're thinking, me, 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 what was me, what was me, what was me, what was me. Your attention's on me. Even if you think, well, I'm not proud by the general sense, now you're proud because now you're taking your worry and your anxiety, and getting yourself in a place where Satan can devour you. We can't be the people Satan devours. We can't be the people Satan takes captive at his will. We have to be men of faith that know Satan's devices and can fight back and win. It's not just our lives that depend on it. Our family depends on us knowing Satan's devices, to be able to spot it out when it tries to come into our house, when it tries to affect our kids, to affect people in our authority range. 
We have to be warrior priests who not just say, oh, I see an enemy, but know how to fight back. See, if you're a warrior, you wage war. You don't just, oh, I'm armed, and if Satan comes at me, I may handle it. No, we have to be those who know what to do and handle it every time. Go to Psalm 112, verse 1. Let's talk about fighting back. Psalm 112, verse 1. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, that delights greatly in his commandments. Where fear here is not being afraid, it means to reverence or to be in awe means to reverence or to be in awe. We are to be in awe of God and not in awe of ourselves. See, it's a trick of our own flesh and of the enemy to make us be confident in our fleshly efforts and to be in awe of ourselves. As Paul said in Philippians 3.3, we cannot put our confidence in the flesh. Who do you really worship? Because some Christians say they worship Jesus, but they really worship themselves. Are you in awe of God? Or are you in awe of yourself? Yeah, I made that business deal. Yeah, it was my connections. Yeah, I study hard. That's how I got that degree. Yeah, that's how I made the money. Yeah, that's how I got my wife. Yeah, that's how I did that. Yeah, it was me. It was me. I'm good. I got this. There was no worshiping Jesus in there at all. It sounded very American. It sounded very manly. But if that's how you talk all the time, you're not a worshiper of Jesus. You worship yourself. See, it reminds me of a guy in the scripture, King Saul. God picked and anointed Saul. Saul was God's choice. And Saul walked with God for a while. He was anointed. He defeated the Philistines. He was a mighty champion. But when you study out all of Saul's life, Unlike other kings who followed him and hundreds of years later, he didn't worship any false gods or idols of the surrounding neighbors. He worshiped himself. He got so full of himself, he began to be so concerned what others think and what others thought, he violated God's command because he wanted the people to love him. He kept getting so focused on himself and led him down this dangerous path. He violated God's command because of what others thought about himself. He lived a life of pleasing others. He opened the door through this for a harassing spirit to come and torment him daily. That's why he needed David to come and play because he was being harassed by a spirit from hell. Why? He opened the door. He started worshiping himself. He opened the door. Satan found a foothold. Satan couldn't stop Saul. He was anointed. Every battle he went to, he won. He had victory wherever he went. But when Saul got full of himself, a door opened and a harassing spirit could come in. Saul got so bad he became a priest killer. You go from a man of God that's anointed, that walked with God, to a man who's killing priests. And then a man who persecutes David. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. First Samuel 16, verse 18. 
God bless all these things Saul did. But he put himself in opposition to God because he got full of himself. 1 Samuel 16, 18. Saul's looking for someone who's anointed who can play so that he won't be tormented. Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, Bethlehemite, that is cunning and plain, a mighty valiant man, a man of war, prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. So we know about King David. One of the greatest warriors of Israel's history was also a worshiper. Let this sink in. Saul was replaced by a worshiper. The first anointed king of Israel was replaced by a worshiper. See, being a worshiper is not only worshiping on Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle. Being a worshiper means we keep our focus in the right place. As a worshiper, we're not to be in awe of ourselves, but to be in awe of God. See, if you're a worshiper, you have to understand worship is intimate and it reshapes our focus. See, when you, if you've ever watched how church goes on, and I've grown up, so I've watched it all. Praise, a lot of people can be involved in praise. They sway back and forth, they clap their hands, look at the screen, say the words. But you see how awkward they get when it comes to worship. Because it's not even the words of the song. It's not even the style. It's just after you progress from praise, you go into worship, it's intimate. And people who actually even begin to try, how many of you ever began to worship and you remember something you did wrong? Anybody else that happened to? It's like, man, how can I even worship? I, I know what I did on the way to church. I know what I did yesterday. What are you doing? You're running in to the holiness of God. And as you're entering into worship, Satan's trying to stop you. Stop focusing on Jesus. Focus on you and all your faults, all your mistakes. How can he go into the holy of holies and worship if you are imperfect? But then you have to remind yourself the blood made a way. I don't come to God because of I'm perfect. I don't come to God because I have confidence in my flesh. I don't come to God because I did everything right this week. I come to God because Jesus was perfect and did everything right. So it doesn't matter what I just did or what I did last week or what I did 10 years ago. I can come to Jesus right now because he's perfect and he made a way for me to come and worship him. So if you're going to be really a worshiper, you have to get over yourself. You have to get over your mistakes. You have to get over your own issues. And in worship, as you close your eyes and focus on him, it's harder to be distracted because you're focusing on someone. And this can't just be what we do on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. We have to be worshipers in our everyday life. We have to be people that when we plead the blood of Jesus over our families in the morning, as we pray in our morning, we take some time just to worship and focus on him. Before we focus on our day, before we focus on the drama that's ahead of us, before we focus on work or any issues we have to handle, let's take some time and focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12 tells us if we don't focus on Jesus, we'll get weary and faint in our minds. You have to look at him. Don't look at yourself. Because you can look at yourself, and depending on where you are in your life, you can get full of yourself. Or you can look at yourself and be discouraged because, like, oh, man, this is all I got. But if you look at Jesus, he'll remind you you can do it because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have to be worshipers. Because Psalm 22, verse 3 says, But you are holy, O thou that inhabits the praises of Israel. That word praise just means praise, it means hymns, and it means singing. God comes in and makes himself at home in our praise, our worship, and our singing to him. That if you ever want God to show up on the scene, just begin to worship. 
God makes himself at home. Another phrase is like he builds a throne out of our worship. Psalm 8, 2 says, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you might still the enemy and the avenger. That word strength, Jesus translates in the New Testament as praises. So out of praises, praise comes forth that the enemy and the avenger might be stilled. So praise and worship is a form of warfare. See, as we praise and worship, heaven can do battle on our behalf and bring the enemy's plans of harm to us, to our families, to our community, to a screeching halt. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We can't just be praisers and worshipers at church. That's good. We should. But it has to be our everyday life. We have to be focused on Jesus so much we notice what he's doing. It's easy to be a Christian who's not focused on Jesus that doesn't know what God is doing in your life. Second Chronicles chapter 20. These three armies are surrounding Judah. Come to take them out, overwhelm them, and take all, everything they have. King Jehoshaphat calls a prayer meeting. He prays. They put their trust and lean on the Lord. And then the Holy Ghost comes on, a man of God, and he begins to prophesy, tells them, here's where they're at, here's what's going to happen. And the king responds, believe his prophecies, so shall you prosper. And so they agreed, God is going to supernaturally deliver us. And so when they all began to talk, the king and the people, they agreed that they should put singers unto the Lord, that should praise the beauty of holiness, and they went out before the army and saying, praise the Lord, or hallelujah, for his mercy endures forever. So they thought it was such a good idea because we trust in God. Before we go into this battle that by human standards we cannot win, that we're going to be slaughtered in, let's put praise and worship ahead of time. Let's say praise the Lord or hallelujah for his mercy, his compassion endures forever, or his covenant love. That's what that word mercy has said in the Hebrew means. Covenant love. God is determined to make his plan and his covenant come to pass in my life. So because of that, I'm not going to consider what's in front of me. I'm not going to consider the enemy in front of me. I'm not going to consider the trouble or the drama. I'm considering my God. Praise him. His mercy endures forever, and he is determined for his plan to come to pass in my life. I can face this enemy because I know he loves me. I know he's got my back, and he's determined to bless me. And so when they began to sing and to praise, it says, that the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, and they were come against Judah, and they were smitten. They all turned on themselves and began to fight each other. They all died in that spot and left all their money for the children of Judah to take. But how were they defeated? Israel did not lift their sword. They didn't fight. All they did was praise and worship. There may be days where you have to grab your sword. There may be days where you have to fight. But there are some battles that will be given to you if you just learn how to not look at your problem and look at your God. Part of your covenant in the book of Hebrews says, you have a God and he has a people. Every challenge you run into, you have to remember, you have a God. When you get a doctor report, that's not good. You have a God. When you get a bill, that's not good. You have a God. When something happens in your house, you have a God. When something happens with your children, you have a God. When something happens on your job, you have a God. Focus on your God, not your drama. Because whatever you focus on, you magnify. 
And some people praise their issues. They worship their drama. They praise their problems when they serve the problem solver, but they're not looking at the problem solver. Praise and worship is a form of warfare. And if we want to be effective warrior priests, we have to be men who praise and worship God every single day. To put our focus on him. See, you can praise in advance. Father, I thank you that it doesn't matter what happens today, I already won. So I praise you in advance for what you're going to do. One of the things I pray every day, Father, help me guide my affairs in discretion. Help me make the right decisions. I don't even know what I'm running into today, but you do. So I ask for your wisdom in advance, and I thank you for it. We have to be people who praise and thank God every single day because we believe that he's good and that his mercy endures forever. To be effective warrior priest, we must shift our awe and attention from ourselves and place it on the one who is truly worthy. Now, this doesn't mean you should think of yourself as some horrible, lowly, wormly person. No. You should think highly of yourselves. Because Psalm 139 verse 14 says, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. So we should think that we're amazing beings. We should think we're highly ourselves. We don't think this way because of what we can do by ourselves, but we think this way because of how God has made us, how he has gifted us, how he has anointed us, and what he has called us to do. When we think of ourselves this way, we can be true worshipers of God. So, yeah, I can handle this because God's given me wisdom to know what to do. Notice what you did. You already talked about the confidence you have, but you know you can do it because who God is. So your decreeing that I can handle this now becomes a form of worship. Oh, yeah, this issue happened in my house, but I can handle it because God told me what to do, and he anointed me. So now you're saying I can do it, and he gave God glory at the same time. Something happens at work. What are you going to do? Well, God's anointed me for this, so I got this. Now you just gave God glory, and you're handling the problem at the same time. You're not supposed to be people who have low self-esteem or have no confidence. You're just not supposed to have confidence in your flesh. You're supposed to have confidence in who God made you to be how God has gifted you, how God has anointed you, how God has made you. You should be so full of confidence in that because you know who your God is. And if God made you this way, you're going to win. Because when you decree those things, that becomes a form of worship to God. Now you're grateful how God made you. You're grateful how he's anointed you. You're grateful how he created you. You're grateful for the wisdom he's given you. Let's go to Hebrews 13, 15. And begin to close here. When we think of ourselves this way, we can be true worshipers of God. Hebrews 13, 15. By him, Jesus, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. As warrior priests, we are priests. So let us offer our praise and worship as we should. This has to be what we do every day. And throughout the day, we must be thankful and mindful of him. When we come into the house of God, we should be the first ones to lift our hands in awe of God. I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. 
Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.